Blockworks is hosting its Digital Asset Summit in October. Over 800 institutions are attending, including FTX, UBS, Morgan Stanley, Coinbase, and the London Stock Exchange. To get a discount, use code GUIDANCE250, all caps, GUIDANCE250. Very happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Jared Dillian, author of The Daily Dirt Nap. Jared, great to have you again. Yeah, glad to be here. What are you seeing on Twitter and how are you how are you thinking about it? So just for a little history on Twitter, you know, Twitter, like finance Twitter, FinTwit, okay? Like there's nobody in charge, okay? Nobody's in charge of FinTwit. It, the inmates are running the asylum. But at various points in history, there's a dominant voice or group of voices. You know what I mean? So if you were on FinTwit, from like 2016 to 2019, you probably remember that the dominant voice on Twitter was Ritholtz Wealth Management. So Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, Ben Carlson, like that whole group of guys. And really that was, you know, when the bull market was in full swing and it was all about indexing. And if you remember, we were having these big arguments about indexing back then. Like yeah. that, that was... That was the thing that everybody liked to argue about. Is indexing good? Is indexing bad? Is it going to blow up the world? Right? So that's all people could talk about. The only person who really is still talking about that is Mike Green. But we've moved on. Like, nobody cares. Like, we moved on. And then from 2019 to 2021, it was crypto. So I would say at the center of that was Anthony Pompliano. Like, Pomp. Like, he, he was the king of Twitter, from 2019 to 2021, plus all the associated characters in crypto. And now they've all been discredited. And now it's, I call it the macro doom crowd, right? So it's, you know, I would say Doomberg is probably at the center of it, but there's a the lot name. of, what's that? It's in the name. Doomberg. Yeah, it's in the name. So, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of macro doom accounts and they're dominating the discourse on Twitter. So, you know, and that really started, I would say, around the beginning, middle of 2021, when the stock market started to roll over. And for sure, like we had bubble like conditions in the stock market, which they had been warning about for a while. And after they were proven right, you know, and I was sort of part of that, then they became the dominant voice. So now really, when you log into Twitter, it's just doom. It is just doom because those Nobody's in charge, but those are the dominant voices, and that's all you hear all day long. Doom sells. Doom is attractive it, for, for folks well, I, to, doom, I don't know perhaps doom why. Doom sells, but doom sells a lot more in this environment, you know, with stocks down 20% from the highs. You know, now that we're in, like, a legitimate bear market. Like, there were doom people in 2017, but they were they were marginalized. You know what I mean? And, I, and yeah. so... Like it, it kind of, it's kind of, it's state dependent. You know what I mean? Right. And what's popular is always, always late. And Jared, you're, you know, a lot of people, they're a fundamental analyst or they're a macro analyst or technical. You're, you do all of that, of course, but your specialty is sentiment. And it, it's always late. I, you know, I remember, you know, if you're, if you, let's say you have a, a podcast like me, you know, and, you know, I, I know a fair thing about, a fair amount about this. Um, like let's say you have a podcast and you want to do one gold interview about gold and then it's a bullish gold interview. You're interviewing someone who's extremely bullish on gold. 
that interview is going to do the best and receive the most amount of views at the absolute top in gold. Literally. People are, it's always late. It's always late. Can you apply that framework, Jared, to what you're seeing now with what regards to what folks are talking about with inflation, uh, what's going on in Europe, the European energy crisis, uh, and also fears sort of the macro, what you perceive as macro doom in Europe. And let me read uh, a quote from your excellent newsletter, The Daily Dirt Nap. You say, everyone is gravitating towards the doom porn and it's, un- it's an unsustainable level of, of doom porn. So, so what are you seeing? Tell us about how you're seeing the, the doom porn in Europe. And I also note that the things that a lot of people are extremely fervent about that you uh, sort of object to and disagree with, those are they have beliefs that you had like a year and a half ago. You know, a year and a half ago, you were an energy bull. So it's not it's not like you are a, a oil hyper bear. Uh, I just want the audience to know that. So yeah, tell us what you're seeing in Europe and energy. Yeah, so this is going to take a while, so just buckle up. So, of course. I mean, so just the background in Europe is um, they they don't have gas, okay? <laughs> so because Russia cut off the gas, so they don't have gas. So, you know, so the, the price of the existing gas has gone up to like $92 per million BTU or something like that, some unsustainable level. Um, and if people really had to pay that, then they would have to severely ration and basically freeze. Like they would be super cold this winter. Um, And I guess my take on that is whenever you find a situation that is unsustainable, it cannot be sustained by definition. If something is unsustainable, it cannot be sustained. So there's really like, if you're the people in charge in Europe, I mean, they're politicians, so they're, incompetent, but they're not like, they're not grossly incompetent. Like they're faced with this problem. People not being able to heat their homes, like they will find a solution. The solution may be bad. Okay. But I assure you that the solution will crush speculators, right? Cause this always happens in every bear market. Once shorts, once speculators, once bears get control of the market, the government changes the rules. You know, this happened in the financial crisis in 2008. Everybody was short banks. And then the SEC came in and said, no more shorting banks against the rules. And there was this huge squeeze. Everybody got squeezed out and they just changed the rules. So my guess, I, I, you know, I have some ideas, you know, I, I think Europe is probably going to have to cut a deal with Putin, okay? Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but let's say they do, like gas prices are going to crash, or they don't cut a deal with Putin and they cap gas prices. Now, capping prices, everybody knows, is against free markets. It's a terrible idea, but doesn't mean they won't do it. And if they cap gas prices, speculators get crushed, right? Or they just bring in a shitload of LNG, which I think is already happening. Like I saw something on Twitter today about like 82 ships full of LNG going to Europe. So, But the point is, is that when faced with a problem, people always figure it out, right? The, like, the, like the problem. And the other thing is, is that for this is, this is especially true in 2022. Everybody's attitude towards trading is infinity or zero right? Nobody can ever take profits. It happened with Bitcoin. People bought Bitcoin. They wrote it all the way up. 
like they were never going to sell infinity or zero. They did it with Tesla. Now they're doing it with energy. They're doing it with oil and nat gas, right? Like everyone's like oil's going to 200, 200 or zero, and they will just never take profits. So that's what's going on. So people who are betting that the price of oil, the price of natural gas will continue to explode higher like it did from January to June of this year. Now it's, I believe, WTI crude's at $83. Uh, so where do you think this is going? It's, it doesn't look good for oil. It really doesn't. I mean, and keep in mind, I look at everything from a sentiment standpoint. Yeah. Not looking at fundamentals, not looking at technicals. I'm not looking at the chart. I, I can tell you that with oil down 30%, everybody is just as bullish as they were at 120. They're absolutely just as bullish. One of the reasons they're just as bullish is because of this phenomenon, which I call the low cost basis fallacy. Okay. Mm. And the low cost basis fallacy is when you get in early on a trade, it works, it goes way up, and then you start to get sloppy about your exit point, right? Because you're sitting on all these unrealized gains. So just say for an example, and I know a guy that did this. There's a guy in my new neighborhood where I'm moving. He did this. He's a, he's a surgeon. And he's like, yeah, I bought 10 grand worth of Tesla in 2012. Now it's worth a million bucks. We had this conversation like six months ago. I'm like, dude, you should take some profits. Jesus Christ. It's like, take some profits. You're up a million bucks on this trade. He's like, no, it's going higher. And I'm like, so he's like, if it goes down 30%, it's not a big deal. I'm like, if it goes down 30%, you lost $300,000. Like, exactly. so, so people, yeah. if, if their cost basis is very low, they get really sloppy. So when I talk to people in the oil market, they're like, oh, I'm long from negative 37. So, you know, I'm down yeah. from 120 to 83. So big deal. It's a 30% drawdown. It's a massive drawdown. You just lost a huge amount of money. So when people's cost bases are very low, they become more willing to take losses, which means oil has a lot more downside. Yes, Jared, I, there, I've been shaking my head and I actually shake my head because I agree with you so much. Oh God, I mean, well, where do I even start? Uh, let's see. So, so yeah, I think the ultimate example of uh, the, uh, the uh, low cost basis is you go to a casino, you uh, get a hundred bucks in chips and you, you run it up to $10,000 and then you're, you're buying everyone drinks. You're, you know, tipping you know lavishly and it's like oh it's the house's money but it's not the house's money it's your money and you're going in with the you, you still have the mindset of someone who has a hundred dollars but you don't you have ten thousand dollars so you should be <laughs> uh, a little more risk averse and um yes i actually not test not buying the stock tesla but i you know by by sheer luck i happened to have bought my first put option on tesla uh, first put option ever and it was on tesla stock uh, in February of 2020, and it was a 30 bagger. So I incredibly lucky, obviously no skill whatsoever, but I got super overconfident and it actually it literally expired worthless. So it was, it was quite oh, a journey. So I know wow. all about the, uh, inval yeah, it's been, it, you know, the, the wounds have healed Jared. It's, it's been a while. I, I learned a few, a few things since then. There's so many stories like that. Like, I, I mean, you know, I'm, I started working in the business in the dot-com bubble and I can't tell you how many stories of, of people I heard who started out with nothing, they became millionaires in dot-com stocks, and then they went back to nothing. All the time. All the time. Infinity or zero. Yes. And 
uh, with regards to oil, there can be, you know, a fund or someone on Twitter who bought an oil stock that crashed in March and April of 2020 to a dollar. And because they were lucky or smart or more likely both, they bought a lot of that stock. And now that stock's at $40. And so they have that outlook that you're talking about. Uh, and more importantly, you know, let's say it does go from $40 to $20. They're still up $19. They're still up, you know, it's a, a 20 bagger. But someone who reads their account on Twitter, they're going to be buying at $40. And they should not be thinking that way. <laughs> anyway, long story short, uh, people are still super, super bullish in energy. Um, so, you know, it's like I actually when I'm on Twitter, uh, like I actually I actually blocked an account today called Oil Rambo. And it's like. The, 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 it, it was a guy who's just like super long oil and he just like trolls everybody who doesn't like oil. It's like a troll account. I'm like, it's really like, it's like Bitcoin in 2019, 20. It like, you you have this whole pack of people and it's like $200 or bust. So yeah. it's, it's, it's incredible. Although, uh, so Jared, for your call to be correct as of right now, you know, September 8th, uh, oil Twitter would have to be like Bitcoin Twitter in 2021, right? Because oil Bitcoin Twitter Twitter in 2020 uh, 2020 was extremely bullish, but it turned out to be right. It's it's it didn't reach peak bullishness until the absolute top, I think, in May and then later in November. Um, how do you know that you're you're right and you have a confidence level? You know, just because everyone's bullish on something doesn't mean that it won't go up, right? The crowd isn't always wrong. I guess I, I guess the thing that that really gives me conviction on this is that if you talk to anybody in the energy world, right, uh, not naming names, if you, talk to, if you talk to the energy bulls, um, you know, they've taken a 30% drawdown and there's no introspection. Like, there's no, ooh, ow, like, I, I just took a big drawdown, shit, maybe I should, you know, uh, close out this position and regroup or whatever. No, they're still, like, they're unapologetic. Like, they're still is like is insanely bullish as they as they were before. Now, what they believe is happening is like this is this they're taking a drawdown. There's this is a correction whether it's technical or sentiment or whatever. I don't think most people know really why this is happening and it'll go on to make new highs later, okay? Well, you know, it's kind of the same argument with Bit, uh, with Bitcoin. I mean, there's a lot of people who rode Bitcoin all the way down. It's stuck at 18,000. And they're just going to hold it for five or 10 years. But it's going to take a lot longer than people think to reclaim those highs. It's not going to happen this year. It's probably not going to happen next year. It's going to take several years. So, And then how are you thinking about natural gas? Because, you know, the price of oil, you can drill oil and you can ship it anywhere. And it's relatively cheap to ship. But with natural gas, it's very hard to transport because it has to be uh, liquefied. And so, for example, let me, I pulled up the stats, uh, you know, the price of Henry Hub U.S. gas is like just shy of eight, uh, just eight dollars. And but in Europe, it's sixty dollars. So you can make, uh, let's see, fifty two dollars by shipping it from, from from Louisiana to the Netherlands. So if, you, if you're a company, I'm, I, you know, I'm speaking more about the fundamentals now, straying away from from the sentiment. But if you're, a, you know, you're producing natural gas at two dollars and you're selling it at eight dollars. And the people who are buying it from you are selling it to people in Europe for $50 or $60. That is a pretty good business model. And it could be such a good business model that just because a lot of people are bullish doesn't mean that it's not going to 
be printing money. Yeah, I, 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 I totally appreciate that argument. I just think, I think in natural gas, uh, it, it was last week, we, we reached peak sentiment when the German electricity prices went totally parabolic. They just like, just went vertical. Um, and I think that's when we reach peak sentiment on natural gas. If you look at, if you look at the charts of the natural gas producers in the U.S., like you had a top and then another top and now it's coming off. It's, it's a little bit of a double top and it's coming off. And, uh, it's, you know, I mean, if, if, if you can arb natural gas to the tune of 60 bucks, like you would, those charts shouldn't be acting like that. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're actually pretty heavy. Jared, in your newsletter, you wrote that you've been reading a lot about, uh, price caps on natural gas. What does that how how does a price cap work? What are the mechanisms, uh, you know, by which it, it actually happens? And then, you know, what are the consequences of it? Well, you know, Europe Europe can just say, uh, you know, natural. It's illegal for natural gas to trade above a certain price, and with a criminal penalty. Like it's just like you can't trade natural gas above a certain price. So, um, you know, price caps are like in capitalism are like the worst thing in the world. They're absolutely the worst thing in the world. And the reason is, is because if you don't allow prices to rise, prices are a signal. They encourage producers to produce more. And they also encourage consumers to economize and ration. So if you cap the price, then those, those price signals aren't working and you'll continue to have shortages. But the right. reason why I brought that up in the newsletter is because like people are sort of blind to the fact that this is a real possibility. And if you're long nat gas in Europe and they cap the price, like you're, you're going to get carried out like that. That will absolutely happen. Yes. And in capitalism, free markets, it is kind of hard for there to actually be a true short shortage. Like up until this point, yes. Uh, there's a economic, there's a lack of gas in Europe that's, that's flowing from Russia, obviously, but actually tankers uh, uh, or storage facilities of natural gas are actually right now higher than their five-year average. Why? Because uh, governments, companies have been buying tons of natural gas from elsewhere. That's why the price is so high. So there, there isn't actually a shortage. It's just there's a shortage at, at uh, levels, uh, at prices that we would like. It's just there's not a shortage at, you know, 200 euros for, for, uh, uh, Dutch gas. Uh, but you're saying if price caps are implemented, then producers would not produce more and consumers would not consume less. So there actually could be a physical shortage of like, there's the, the natural gas isn't in the tank. It's not where it's supposed to be. Like right now, the natural gas is in the tank. It just costs 10 times higher than it should. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, I saw an interesting tweet today from Matt Ridley. I don't know if you know who Matt Ridley is, but he's written, he's written several books. One of them's the rational optimist. Uh, he's, he's in the house of Lords in England and, you know, it's interesting. He said, look, like, you know, northern England has like a quadrillion cubic feet of natural gas under the ground. Like it's there. Like if, if you wanted to frack for this in northern England, like the like the problem would be solved overnight. You know what I mean? I mean, obviously you couldn't do it overnight. It would take. Some well, not time. overnight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I would say it's not right because it's in the physical world. Like the Fed could buy a trillion dollars worth of mortgage-backed securities in a day if it wanted to. Like, it wouldn't, but it technically could. But, you know, if you have just a patch of brown or green land, it does take, you know, a few months 
in some cases years. I mean, you know, the more the more you're a commodity bull, the longer people think say it takes to, to create a mine or, or a drilling rig. You know, if you're like super bullish in copper, you're like it takes 50 years to make a mine. The other the other thing, I mean, you just mentioned being a commodity bull, like you know. So I've seen this phenomenon a couple times, and like we're ha- we we have a lot of commodity bulls now, and we had a lot of commodity bulls in the 2000s. And the philosophy behind both of these bull markets is predicated on the idea of scarcity or shortages, right? Like we don't have enough commodities. But if you think about it, like if that's, if that's your belief, then you're essentially short human ingenuity. Like what you believe is, is that humans are not smart, that we won't be able to grow corn, grow wheat, mine for gold, mine, you know, drill for oil, and we won't be able to relieve these scarcity issues. So it's... You know, I find being a commodity bull like a very, very pessimistic, a very pessimistic point of view. And, you know, if in, in, the, in the oil trade, by the way, has turned into the doomsday trade because yeah. it's essentially negative one correlated with the S&P. So if oil is up, the rest of the market is down. If oil is down, the rest of the market is up. And if you're betting on oil, you're betting on everything else to go to shit. It's the doomed. It's the doomsday trade, and people love that stuff. Right. Just I want to revisit a time when you actually were very bullish on oil and oil producers, and not only did you make a lot of money uh, doing it, but you know you wrote about it in your newsletter, and and I read your newsletter, and I actually you know bought some calls on some some oil producers like in January of 2021. Um, what what were the conditions then? that made you bullish and how are they different now? In other words, if, if being a commodity bull is being short human ingenuity, why were you short human ingenuity in January, 2021 by being bullish on oil? Well, that was, I mean, that situation was kind of peculiar. Um, I mean, we had negative oil. Now I got long before it went negative. Okay. Like I'm not saying I picked the bottom and anybody who who says they picked the bottom is a huge asshole because like it went negative for like two minutes so no. like that's garbage. So I got long uh, XLE. I want to say when oil was trading around twenty three, like maybe two months before the crash. Um, so I was a little bit early, and I did take a drawdown. But I'm like, yeah. I mean, it was just kind of common sense. Like oil at twenty three bucks. Like you just kind of you, you want to load up the boat. You know, I mean, they were just giving it away, and eventually they did give it away. <laughs> yeah, true. They paid you to take it. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, that's, you know, it was, it was an extreme, you know, so I just, that's, that's, that's kind of how I invest. I would, I would love another opportunity like that, you know, and, you know, when oil got up to 120, I bought puts on XLE. I did it too freaking small. I made some money on it, but like, I should have done that a lot bigger. So Mm. would you say that energy stocks XLE is the sector of stocks that you're the most bearish on right now? Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, like you don't, you don't find these levels of sentiment in other sectors. Like you don't have like a Twitter account called utility Rambo. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. <laughs> like it just doesn't exist, you know? Um, I mean, for a while we were calling oil, like oil coin, like that was a joke for a while, but it's, it's absolutely true. And here's, here's a thing. Here's a thing. You know, a lot of these energy bulls have shown no contrition at all with this drawdown. No level of introspection at all. 
They have not publicly said, you know, one thing you could say is, look, my view is temporarily out of favor. I remain bullish. You know, this is a drawdown, but there's no apologies. There's there like people are just pretending this isn't happening and they're leading all like really a bunch of like retail investors off the cliff, you know? So, right. So I'm just, I'm just taking a look at prices. So, okay. So right now U S oil, yeah, sorry, excuse me, the U S oil ETF, which owns a basket of uh, oil WTI oil futures. I actually think it used to own only the front month, but that they, it was the, the government told them they had to change it because of when oil went April, uh, went negative in April, 2020. Um, so that's down 25%. XLE, which, you know, is the basket of ETF basket of companies that uh, uh, drill and produce oil and natural gas. That is down 14% um, from June, and it had a drawdown of like 24% um, into July. So it's a 14% drawdown on the actual. It's a and I believe on the spot commodity, um, I believe it's it's worse. Like yeah, 120 to 83, that's worse. But you know, so to have been down that much, you have to have actually owned the front month contracts. But a lot, you know, a lot of let's say I'm on Twitter. You know, my my. Uh, Twitter handle is, you know, oil super bowl. Uh, <laughs> that's my Twitter yeah, handle. And, uh, you know, I bought at the absolute top XLE, like I'm only down 14%, you know, that's not, it's, it's not diluted to not have contrition at 14%, especially in a asset class. That's that volatile. That's, that's fair. That's fair. But like you said, it was down 24 at one point and it actually True. went down to like a straight line. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, oh, yeah. but that's, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Uh, tell me more about Europe. When you say there's so much, you know, doom obsession in Europe, a lot of it is about Dude. energy. But what else is it about? It's like there was there was some guy. He had this Twitter thread. There was going to be like a sovereign debt crisis, a banking crisis, a financial crisis. You want to stock up on food and wood and like the, I I even there was like people are like calling for like mass starvation like this is insane it's absolutely insane I had um when I was in New York uh, a couple of weeks ago I had I had dinner with um uh, a German friend of mine he was actually uh, an exchange student at my high school and I hadn't seen him in 31 years and we had dinner together wow he's a very smart guy he was a McKinsey consultant and now he's a consultant at Accenture and we talked mm. about this European energy issue. And he basically said, you know, Germans are ready for it. They're ready for a cold winter and they'll tough it out. You know, like they're they're mentally prepared for it. Um, so, you know, the other thing you have to remember yeah. is that the distance from Germany to Ukraine is about the distance from Myrtle Beach to New York. Like it's very close. So the Germans don't want Putin in their backyard. And, right. you, know, you know, they it, 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 like... There is there is some talk, you know, amongst these energy guys like these insane sanctions on Russia and, you know, German people like, you know, want to want to stop, you know, stop the same. Like, I, I, I kind of get the opposite impression. Like, I, you know, I think that yeah. they're on Ukraine's side and they, they're going to will, willing to tough this out. So I'm I agree with you. I'm more sympathetic to your arguments uh, about economic financial doom, about um so in other words, financial stress within the European uh, Euro, uh, economic financial system of the euro is going to collapse or sovereign euro spreads in Italy and Greece, they're going to widen out to 70 basis points. I think that 
as you said, uh, regulatory institutions, the European Central Bank, as they did in 2011, they will fix that. They can narrow those spreads uh, by with their balance sheet. They can narrow the spread between Italian yields and German Bund yields with their balance sheet, as they are doing. They are letting German Bunds roll off, and they are buying net-net uh, Italian debt. And, and the yields are, you know, so far it's, it's working, kind of. Uh, and there really is no limit to doing that in the same way that the Fed did in March of 2020, in April 2020, because it's just balance sheet. It's all made up, right? Uh, it's not It's not in the physical world, I should say. I was at a talk with Zoltan Pozar point, um, recently, and he made this point that spreads can be solved with balance sheet, central banks, sometimes governments, but you can't, you know, ECB can spend as much money as it wants. It can't, like, produce, boom, a barrel of oil uh, f- from nothing like it can a bank reserve. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I've heard that argument a bunch of times. You can't print oil, you know. Yeah. It doesn't mean that, like, that Europe isn't checkmate. And 2011 is a good example because, you know, I was still doing the newsletter back then. You know, I was on, like, year three. And, like, this was, you know, Twitter was still pretty new, but there was still, like, this macro doom that was going around that Europe is going bankrupt and the euro is going to split apart. We're going to go back to escudos and punts and, you know, drachmas and, you know, it just the euro, the euro was going to disappear. Uh, never happened. You know what I mean? Like, they changed the rules. Like, that's always what happens in times of stress. They change the rules. You know, it's so, uh, like, this is more difficult, like, but there are solutions. You know what I mean? So... Uh, you know, the, the the nightmare scenario is 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 not going to happen. How do you th- if what you so let's say in six months, you know, roughly where do you think the price of oil is going to be? Give me you can give me a range. You can be a huge range. Well, the huge range is 60 to 80. That's my huge range. Yeah. OK. OK. So, yeah, you're not calling for like 50 or 40. Well, no, yeah. Six, no. 60 to 80. OK. Um, so where. So let's say the price of oil is sixty five dollars in December. The. I love oil at I love oil on Twitter accounts. What do you think they're going to be saying? And how do you, will you be reacting to it? Uh, they are indefatigable. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look like at some point you, you, uh, admit defeat, you curl up into a ball and you die. You know, that's what, that's what happened to the Bitcoin folks. You know what I mean? Like they're, uh, all the have fun staying poor and all that stuff. Like it just went away. So yeah. that'll happen at some point. And um, I remember you battled those people, Jared. I know. On Twitter, and you it was, it was very unpopular. But here's, you, here's, you, here's, the, here's the thing, right? I'm not saying I'm right all the time. Like, I'm not like an yeah. egomaniac or anything. But what I, I often find myself in the position where I'm battling against a prevailing narrative, you know? Um, and it's a very lonely position to be in. And, and the reason I'm in those positions is because I'm a sentiment trader, and I observe sentiment and I observe when sentiment gets too crowded. So basically I'm always in a position where I'm pushing back against the crowd. And Mm -hmm. that gets that, that is a suboptimal strategy. If I were to write a newsletter and really, if I really wanted to make a lot of money, what I would do is I would be a mirror of the mood of the markets. I would be a mood mirror, right? So, you know, Bitcoin is at 18,000. I would say Bitcoin sucks it's going lower, whatever. And I'm just reflecting the mood back on, uh, onto me. And yeah. that makes me sound smart because I'm saying something that's happening here and now. 
which is and not people really will different. like your tweets they'll subscribe to your newsletter you'll just get yeah. people will love you unlike now jared when they hate you <laughs> oh my god yeah you just need to step away from the keyboard it's really going to be okay and I, you know i don't know if you if, if you had housing you want to talk about housing today but this is another example of it like everybody is like massively bearish on housing you know, there's a lot of housing threads and stuff going around, a lot of housing doom porn. You know, it's funny because I'm actually talking to a couple of real estate agents. We're selling our house in about a year and they show up at my house and they're like, uh, we've been reading a lot of stuff about the housing market lately. What do you think? You know, and like everybody's predicting like another financial crisis. It's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Like people have so much equity in their homes, like 40% of homes in the U.S. are owned free and clear. There's no leverage in the system. Underwriting standards are great. You cannot have a financial crisis without leverage in the system. You know what I mean? Prices can come down. You can have bear markets yeah. in assets where there's no leverage, but it's going to be a correction and that's it. Yeah. Just because we're not in a housing bull market anymore does not mean we're having a 2007, 2008 style collapse a lot of that is recency bias you know people just say mm -hmm. what i mean we just experienced this 14 years ago so it's fresh in people's minds so people think it's going to happen again you know absolutely not yes and yeah the lending standards are higher so when people buy a house they put more money down and their, their credit quality is higher so they don't have a incentive they have incentives to stay in the home unlike in 2007 and 2008 when people literally wouldn't even move into their house because by the time they had bought it they you know had already defaulted on it essentially yeah yep. um jared what do you think about stocks generally uh i think we're kind of in a range which isn't a very exciting thing to say but uh, i think the fed has dictated the terms you know we we got the fed put around 3600 in the s p that's when bostick uh, said we might have a pause and you know the market rallied 700 points and then you got the fed call at you know 4300 where the fed decided you know this is kind of stupid that stocks are rallying while we're hiking rates so they cranked it down further so i think that's kind of where we are i think we're between 3600 and 4300 and it's it's going to stay that way until the fed actually does pause uh and the only thing that worries me is that, like, you know, they, I, I really am not, they seem pretty willing to keep hiking rates for a while. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, at first we were thinking three and a half to four. <laughs> now we're kind of thinking four to four and a half. What's next? Four and a half to five. Like, how far does this go? Like, it's. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. So I think the, the highest price into the Fed funds futures is like 3.9, but it's, going to be out there for a long time and but it is still pricing 50 basis points of cut so like an inverted curve uh but yeah i just think inflate i think inflation has to get pretty damn close down to two percent in order for the federal reserve to cut rates like yes they could might they might only go to four percent but it's gonna they're gonna stay there until inflation is like you know two and a half percent maybe three percent i don't know um and yeah, so maybe people think I'm a fool because I take the Federal Reserve at its own word, uh, which definitely would not have been a good trading strategy uh, over the past decade after the great financial crisis. Um, but because, you know, uh, the dot plot was always indicating they would hike rates, but they never did. Um, but yeah, so so sort of setting, you know, the Federal Reserve aside, like what? Are you, yeah, so you're not bullish or bearish. 
No. Don't uh, really have a view? Not really. I mean, I do want to talk about the Fed a little bit. You know, I mean, we we mentioned this earlier. Um, I mean, you have to think about how insane it is that we're in a recession and the Fed is hiking. Like, that's insane, right? Like, usually what happens, what's supposed to happen is that you have an expansion and the economy grows and inflation starts to pick up and then the Fed starts hiking and they continue to hike and then the economy goes into a recession and then they start cutting. They're actually doing it ass backwards. Like we're hiking in a recession and what's going to happen is, is that we're going to come out of this and we're going to be in, a re- in an expansion and then they're going to be cutting rates in an expansion. It's totally backwards. Jared, if you were chairman of the Federal Reserve, how, what would your monetary policy be? Sticking first with interest rates, and then, I don't know, maybe you can talk about QT. Well, you know, I mean, at the, if you read my newsletter in 2020, probably at the end of 2020, you know, you had inflation picking up, and I said the Fed should hike rates. I think they, they should have started hiking back then. And I think they should have been done hiking by the end of 2021. Instead, they actually started hiking at the yeah. end of 2021. You know what I mean? So that's yeah. that's the mistake, and it's a very obvious mistake. Like I don't, I like I don't, you know, people criticize the Fed all the time. It's very fashionable to criticize the Fed, and I think they, I think they just take a lot of abuse that's like not warranted. They are yeah. nice people. Like they're trying their best. Like, <laughs> like I firmly believe that they're good people. They're not evil, but you know the the politics around monetary policy just cause the, it causes things to get all screwed up, you know? So that's, that's the problem. Yes. And you know, folks who loathe the fed because they think that they, you know, made rich people richer because of QE and that hadn't, you know, did not stimulate any growth whatsoever. Those people should be aware that the federal reserve now is trying to do the exact opposite. They're not printing money to inflate assets. They are burning money in order to decrease the price level of assets to have a reverse wealth effect instead of a wealth effect. And, you know, for folks who object to my terms of printing money instead of, and burning money instead of bank reserves, well, you know, uh, it's just a matter of semantics. Yeah, Jerry, what do you think about the whole burning money thing? Because to me, it's no one, dis- no one who's like aware of the monetary mechanics, which you can, you know, I mean, it does take a while to learn because it can be confusing, but, you know, we all, we all know Someone who says the Fed prints money is someone who says the Fed doesn't print money. It's possible for both of those people to have a correct understanding of like what actually happens, but they're just using different words. So do you think the Fed prints money? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, like just Jay Me Powell too. went on 60 Minutes and said that he did. You know what I mean? Like it's just not, it's not controversial. Yeah. So it's, it, it's a higher power form of money that you or I can't touch, but it's it's a it's it's the asset of commercial banks in the same way that our asset is the liability of of commercial banks. So when people talk about quantitative tightening, you know the Fed's balance sheet is eight nine trillion. Uh, we're doing ninety two billion a month in quantitative tightening. Like, it what is that? That's that's like nothing. Like it's it's just a tiny percentage of the Fed's assets. And it has an enormous effect on markets. And I've never, that's something like as an analyst, like I've never understood. Like back in 2017, 2018, when we were doing just a tiny amount of quantitative tightening, like it had a huge effect on stocks. It had a huge effect on everything. So I I really find that to be amazing. 
Yes, I, I spoke recently to Andy Constan as well as Joseph Wang, and he he made that exact point that it is the flow of the Fed's balance sheet, not the the flow of assets onto or out from the Fed's balance sheet, not the absolute size of the Fed's balance. Like you, I'm bewildered as to why that's the case. But yeah, I think that is like, in other words, a ten trillion dollar balance sheet that is decreasing is bad for liquidity, whereas a one trillion dollar uh, balance sheet that is increasing can be good for liquidity. So it's it's not about the absolute level, but but the rate of change. So uh, so yeah, so if quantitative tightening is so bad, and now we're doing almost double what QT was in uh, uh, before when you were referencing, well, um, why? How come you're not more bearish? Uh, it's hard to be bearish when sentiment is this bad. You know what I mean? Like this is, you know, this this is this is the thing. This is a position I find myself in all the time. You know, like. If you look around, you know, European energy, China, war in Ukraine, right? There's all these reasons for the market to go down. There's really no reason for it to go up. Those are usually the situations where the market goes up. You know what I mean? When there's absolutely no reason for it to go up, that's usually when it goes up and vice versa, like, you know, at the top of a bull market. I mean, we were there in January of 2021. There was absolutely no reason for the market to go down. So, you know, this is why, you know, trading sentiment, like people, like uh, pe- people need, they, they need evidence. They need evidence and they're uncomfortable with faith, right? So you just asked me, what are my reasons for being bullish? I'm, I'm like, I don't have any fucking reasons. Like I'm bullish because... Everybody else is bearish. And, yeah. and then people say, well, that's a stupid reason. I'm like, actually, it's not. Like, it actually, if you backtest that over time, like, it works pretty well. But, like, people people need something to latch on to. And, yeah. you know, sentiment trading really, it really is about faith. Like, in the face of all the evidence to the contrary, that this stock, this bond, this market is going to go up, like, that's how it works. Yes, I think that it depends on how you gauge gauges. So I think you were very good at gauging sentiment as well as extracting meaning from it. And in some cases, sort of signals from it. I, I definitely think it's a skill and just be like, you could having never even thought about sentiment, you could sort of instinctually quote, do it, but just because you can do it doesn't mean you can do it well. So I definitely would uh, caution people from like, you know, making big size trades based on how they feel about how other people feel just because people like you do it well, doesn't mean that, you know, it could, it could be done done poorly. But there are instances when people are hyper bullish on an asset and then it goes up or hyper bearish on an asset and it goes down. Like, you know, in December of 2020, uh, people were, you know, one could say if I, if I was trying to take a contrarian sentiment view, I'd say everyone is super bullish. Like I'm going to short Bitcoin, but that wouldn't have ended out great. So how do you know? How do you know? How do you make that specific timing? That's my question. So really, um, my process is it's not strictly sentiment. I also do some chart work, right? So the sentiment tell the sentiment kind of gets me in the neighborhood. Okay, bullish, bearish, you know, within a couple of weeks, a month, something like that. And that's when I start doing technical analysis to get more scientific about where the actual turning point is. Like when I bought puts on XLE, I was one day early. I missed it by a day. So I can get pretty scientific about it. But, um, it, it, you know, it's not, it's, and sometimes 
you know, sometimes it, it, the sentiment actually works to the day, like an Economist cover or something like that. Like you get an Economist cover and like that top picks it. So you're saying it's sentiment and then technicals. And then when, it, when both sort of smell bad, that's a really signal to get bearish. So for example, to answer my own question, in December of 2020, the sentiment was bullish, so that might have been, you know, a contrarian sentiment signal to, to not be bullish, but the chart looked amazing because it was exploding higher day after day. You're saying now in energy, sentiment is way too bullish and the chart looks bad. Yeah, I mean, I, I do want to add a caveat. So, you know, oil is kind of bouncing along trendline support. Um, actually, as we're you know recording this today, it's actually bouncing a little bit today. Like it could bounce off a of trendline support. You know, but it's not going to get back up to 120 with this many people bullish. So, yeah. And so, so there's sentiment, which you're an expert in. I'd say that like a foremost, a world expert on sentiment. And then you look at technicals. Those are sort of the two things that you look on. You look at fundamentals and macro, but like less so. I would say on a fundamental case, it seems to me that at least for natural gas, like the case is kind of bullish. If it's like, if it's $8 over here and it's $50 over here, you know. I wouldn't short the $8 one, you know, and I wouldn't short companies that are making it at, you know, at $2. One thing, one thing I'll say about fundamentals, like I'm not saying that my way is the right way and everybody should do it my way because some people are very successful with fundamentals. Uh, with me, when I try to use fundamentals, I find that I am very, very late to a trade. I am very late. And some people are good at using fundamentals and being early. And I am not that person. You know, every time I'm, and just for example, what, what was what was the one like? It was like, oh, um, I was long Novo Nordisk, you know, with the weight loss yep. drug, Wegavy, um, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was funny because uh, I had a conversation with my doctor and we were talking about this drug and then I did some research on it and I'm like, I'm a fucking genius. Like, I figured it out. Like, this drug is going to change the world. And I bought the highs. I literally bought the highs in the stock. I was like the last person to find out, you know what I mean? And I did all the fundamental work. Yeah. Like I, I bought it for fundamental reasons. I was just the last person. So it just doesn't work yeah. for me. Uh, Jerry, you're exactly right. And I think that's true regardless of who is analyzing it is that the fundamentals always in some ways look best at the top, like natural gas companies, the fundamentals have literally never looked better than right now. And obviously it was by definition, it was a better time to buy it in May of 2020, when the fundamentals looked absolutely horrible. So you have to foresee the fundamentals and predict them and accurately predice, uh, predict how those forward fundamentals will be priced, uh, as opposed to just saying, oh, wow, like this company is trading at a 10 PE. It's a buy. Yeah, that's how you get yourself in trouble. <laughs> Jared, how else do people get themselves in trouble? And maybe in this current environment, other than being super hyper bullish on oil, uh, uh, natural gas, energy, how, what do you think people are doing or saying that is getting them in trouble that you think uh, uh, will, will not be good for them that you're trying to avoid? I think that what a lot of people do is they make assumptions that the current market environment is going to persist forever, right? So this environment we're in right now, energy is outperforming, tech is underperforming, interest rates are going up. Uh, gold is going down, all this shit. So this regime, people think that this regime is going to persist for a long time and these trades will continue to work. 
But what happens inevitably in the markets, like regimes change and different things start to work. You know, one of the th things I like to say about the markets is that they exhibit a property that I call non-stationarity. And non-stationarity mm -hmm. means that you're playing a game where the rules constantly change. You know yes. what I mean? So, like, it's, it's a bit like playing chess. You're playing chess, and the knight goes two steps forward, one step to the side, and then you change the rules, and it goes diagonally. And you just have to all, completely alter the way you play. And a lot of people get, get caught up in regime change, and they just aren't able to adapt. And how they were making money before, they can't make money anymore. You know, so um, I guess what I'm saying is this regime that we're in, which has lasted about six or eight months, like it's not permanent. It's going to change. I don't know what the new regime is going to be like, but everyone's going to get sconed. Another bugaboo of you, Jared, is the dollar, which has been extremely strong against the yen and the euro in particular. How do you think... What are you seeing in terms of how uh, the sentiment is towards the dollar and what, how does it inform your view on the dollar? Well, I made a pretty noisy short call on the dollar and uh, I got stopped out, but not by much, by like a percent. But, you know, like if, if you have integrity on Twitter, then you say that you were wrong. You know what I mean? So yeah. it br broke through my level and I stopped myself out, whatever. I still I'm still bearish on the dollar. I'm still bearish on the dollar. I actually think we're I think we're making another top as we speak. You know, even in the last day or two trading days, the dollar is, has 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 sorry sold off quite a bit. Um, so I don't what what the catalyst for that is. I'm not really sure. Um, you know, maybe it's Europe getting better. Maybe it's the Fed pivoting. Who knows? But um, the chart looks pretty toppy for me in the DXY. So, yeah. So, you know, obviously you're an expert in sentiment. So that's what you're paying attention to. And uh, things that drive currencies, there's a lot of like flows and inflation. And, and I'm sure people who are listening to that know a lot more about that than I do. Uh, but, you know, I do pay a lot, a lot of attention to central banks. And for a while, the Federal Reserve was early to the race. It got a jump start in hiking interest rates and uh, that it also did forward guidance. Uh, so interest rate, like the two year moved up even more and the ECB, the BOJ and the bank of England were kind of behind the curve by design. That's changed. Like we're recording this on September 8th, September 8th. And you know, I watched Christine Lagarde's face and she's just telling, you know, journalists, no, like it's, we're, we're serious this time. And, uh, yeah, we, we're going, we're hiking by 75 basis points. We're hiking more until inflation is under control. And then the journalist is like, but has the bond market priced in your hawkishness too much? And she's like, are you dumb? Did you listen to what I just said? Um, so I, I you know, interest rate differentials matter a huge amount for currencies. And if, if a big driver of the euro's weakness against the dollar was that euro yielded zero and the two year uh, U.S. Treasury yielded two and a half percent, now like three point four percent. And so money just flo fl uh, flooded into the U.S. I think that on net net could change a little bit. So net net, like I, uh, I, I, I think that the euro, I mean, I, I don't really have a view, but I think, um, I'm definitely, I, I think the euro has a better chance against the dollar today than it did like two months ago. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I will say is like, people forget this. Like if the feds, let, let's say the fed pivots, right? The dollar is going to move like a week or two before it pivots, right? Lower. Like, Oh yeah. Lower. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like that's, that's how markets work. You know what I mean? So, 
you hear people make these statements like, oh, like, you know, the dollar will, will, you know, you can get short the dollar when the Fed pivots. Yeah, by the time the Fed pivots, it's too late. It's too late, which is why you need to trade sentiment and why you need to trade the charts, you know. And actually, it's funny because, you know, Brent Johnson, who I think is a friend of mine, but I, um, you know, when I was when I was at Bloomberg over the summer, I wrote an article about uh, the cult of the dollar bulls, right? And I mentioned Brent Johnson. Now, I wasn't pejorative. I wasn't ripping on him. But basically, I said, like, you know, he has a lot of followers. There's a lot of dollar bulls out there, and he's kind of in the middle of it. And I think that's a top in the dollar. Well, it was kind of like an interim top, and then we recently blasted through that. But, um, I mean, sentiment in the dollar is, is, is it's, I wouldn't say it's as bullish as energy, but it's, it's very, very bullish. Yeah. Well, dollar bulls make me think about bond bulls. Who, oh, it's, it's been a tough time because duration has felt so much heat, uh, and, and it's just really been a very v- vicious trade for for long-term bonds um, particularly like the 30-year treasury tlt you know drawdowns that you just are not supposed to see in a long-term treasury bond like that we haven't seen since the 1970s um how are you thinking about the like let's say let's say tlt because in that space i do see a lot of people where like tlt goes from 160 to 150 and they're like i'm still bullish it goes from 150 to 140 they're like i'm still bullish it goes from 140 to 130 i'm still bullish 130 to 120 still bullish 120 to 110 i'm the most bullish i've ever been you know like (laughs) so i don't know and obviously like a 3.5 percent 30-year treasury to me it sounds like good value because for my you know entire adult life it's been way below that but i don't know i don't know what do you think about the, the duration 10's got up to three and a half the first time uh, on that CPI print where everybody panicked. Um, and then it rallied all the way to two and a half. Like, I don't know if you remember that, but it got all the way to two and a half. And yeah. now it looks like we're going to do a double top at three and a half. Two, two, two and a half on 10's is too low. Like, that's, that's pricing in a large recession, which I don't think we're going to get. So And a large fall in inflation, which we're also not going to get. <laughs> So two and a half on tens was a good selling opportunity. Honestly, I think I think we should kind of be in a range between like three and three and a half. Like that, that yeah. kind of makes the most sense. Um, I don't really see a scenario where rates go to four, four and a half, or some absurd number like that. Um, it would cause. I mean, it already is causing a lot of pain. Mortgage rates, as of today, the mortgage rates came out. Thirty-year fixed mortgage in the U.S. is now five point eight six percent. It got up to 6.2% a couple of months ago, but 5.86% is, you know, pretty high in the context of the housing market not doing so great. Um, So the one thing I've always been a little puzzled about with the Fed is that the Fed has historically protected the housing market a lot more than it is right now. I mean, the housing market is our number one engine of economic growth, and they seem to be like sort of willfully oblivious to the fact that the housing market is like gagging, you know, because of all these rate hikes and they don't really seem to care, you know? So it's, it's kind of interesting to me. I just want to square what you said with your earlier comment that we're not going to have a 2007, 2008 real estate collapse. No, we're interest not. rates, interest, mortgage rates have shot up. So the housing market, it stopped going up and in some instances, you know, it's, it's gone down. Uh, in the case Schiller, it's you know you're not. It's really hard for that index to go down just because it's it's like diversified, which is funny because 
the it's diversified bro argument was like what caused the 2008 financial crisis. But um, <laughs> uh, I think they, the Fed, they're like the homeowners, they're fine. Inflation is that I think the Fed has one and only one and only concern. And that's inflation. And that obviously could change. But right now, that's what I think. Do, do you think after, that it might change after the midterms? Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, I mean, you know, it, you know, Biden's approval rating is 38 uh, percent. Probably the biggest driver of that is inflation. So the thinking is we're going to fight inflation hard until the midterms and then ease up on it afterwards. And maybe that's a cynical way to look at it, but could happen. Yeah. Yeah, you could be right. Well, Jared, I, I want to ask you, so it sounds like in the short term, you think CPI will fall, inflation will fall quite sharply because if you're right about the energy, um, you know, so much of the headline CPI has been these energy prices. Uh, but what about longer term structural inflation? You know, I was reading in your newsletter, the Daily Dirt Nap, that you think 2% is, you know, it's not 2% inflation as being the norm is not going to be the norm anymore. So what is the new norm? 3%, 3.5%? And you know, does that change the, mar- the macro environment for like the next five years? I would say four to five. Um, I would say four to five is as low as we're going to get. We probably get there in middle of 2023. Um, you know, I mean, basically what that means is we're not going to have zero rates again. That's not happening. Um, like we're, we're going to have persistently high interest rates. Now, you know, when a lot of people hear that, they're like, oh, my God, stocks are going to crash, blah, blah, blah. No, not necessarily. I mean, you know, I was, you know, when I came into the markets in 1999, Fed funds was six and a half percent. And I want to say inflation was like four and a half percent. You know what I mean? So which is like and the economy was doing great. So it's, you know, I think I think we'll do fine under those circumstances. But we're not going to have this ultra loose, well, sorry, ultra easy. Jerry, sorry, the, the, the stock market, you joined in 99. The stock market did not have a good time your first few years of your career. Well, eventually. Well, I did they, for the first year, but after that. like They, the, hike, they hike so much that it gagged, basically. Yeah, right. So. Yeah, I, I, that was my reaction, to be honest, when you said 5%. So you think the lowest we get is 5%, and then that's 5% is the new 2%? That seems, I mean, that, that means that uh, you know, inflation expectations have to be higher than they are now. That is, to me, that just sounds like a pretty bearish scenario for stocks as well as bonds. It's not bullish. It's not bullish. <laughs> yeah. So but when you I say you're bullish on it. stocks, that is a more shorter term trading thing uh, rather than a five year time horizon, which is what we're talking about now, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I heard Rosenberg is saying we're going to get down to 2,400 in the S&P. That's not happening. It's definitely not happening. So I have a lot of respect for uh, David Rosenberg. I think that. If we do get to down to the uh, 2400 in the S&P 500, it is because of inflation. And I'm pretty sure Rosenberg's case is it's because of a he- giant recession. So, But uh, yeah, interesting. Well, Jared, you've been really generous with your time. Uh, I, before we go, I want to uh, let people know that. So I had read your first book, Street Freak, which is autobiographical. Very good. Uh, it's very popular. People probably already heard it already. I didn't know about your second book, uh, All the Evil of This World, which is actually a novel, which, you know, you don't have a lot of folks in finance writing novels. And, you know, Jared, because you're in finance, I always forget how good of a writer you are. You know what I mean? Because, like, people in finance are not good at writing. Um, but you're a really good writer. And you know, it's, it's a tale of a specific trade in, I think, believe 2000 in the options pits. But it's told from seven different characters. And 
you know, it's not just about finance. There's a lot of, you know, it covers, like many other novels, it's, it's about the human condition, not the trade, not, not a particular trade. Um, so, yeah, I, I, love, I love the book, Jared, so thanks for recommending that. Thanks. Uh, that, that, is, that is my favorite book. I really, really like that book, and I think, I think everyone should get a copy. Uh, I'll, I, you know, what I told you was, if you, know, if you read the first page, it's going to punch you right in the face, and then you're not going to be able to put it down, so. yeah. It really did. I really was very probably more surprised by the first page of this book than pretty much any other book I've ever read. It, it's a, a truly stunning first page. <laughs> That's all I'll say. <laughs> um, and Jared, the second thing is, uh, you know, in addition to being a investor, trader, real estate, uh, newsletter writer, and author, you are also a DJ as well as Bloomberg intern. You are also a DJ. You have a concert coming up in New York. Tell us about that. Yeah. So we get a party coming up September sixteenth. Uh, Friday, September 16th. It's at Do D-O-U-X Supper Club in New York City. It's at 59 West 21st Street. Um, if you want to buy tickets, just go to my Twitter page and just kind of scroll through. You'll find a link there somewhere. Um, you can also just show up at the door. We can buy tickets at the door. Um, would love to have a bunch of people there. It's my party. I mean, Jack, Jack's been to one of my parties. It was a hoot. So, And the music is going to be amazing. Really great music. I, I was there. Yeah, people should definitely show, um, show up. I'm going to be there. Jared, people could follow you on Twitter, of course, at Daily Dirt Nap. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks Daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks Daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter. 